Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. I think is um, really important for all of us to keep in mind as we as we practice our own personal practice, as we for those who are so inclined or have the opportunity to share the Dharma with others, and that is the uh, the topic of devotion. Um, <clears throat> by the way, I'm not sure if the what the schedule says outside, but um, <clears throat> we have the whole morning for this. Um, I don't know if it said that Evan was going to be Evan is not going to be here this morning, and he'll be doing his his piece um, sometime tomorrow. <clears throat> Uh, <clears throat> and I thought, uh, and besides, I'll give you a little overview. Um, I'll be sharing for some time um, to start and then uh, invite any comments from the other people up here. Um, have us do some uh, interactive exercises to get in touch with our own wisdom and um, and then have some um, some practices that uh, Tanisara will share with us towards the end. Uh, and I wanted to start by playing uh, a cut from uh, the chant, uh, heart heart mantra chants. Uh, how what's the name of it? Buddhist heart mantras. Buddhist heart mantras. Uh, a CD that Tanisra and Kitty Sorrow, a beautiful CD that they uh, put together to um, put us in the mood. So that first cut. Let's take this as a meditation. Make sure the volume is up enough. Namo tassa bhagavato arato samma sambuddhassa Namo tassa bhagavato arato samma sambuddhassa
to your heart, to your openness. Um, I don't know if it's so for you, but for me, just hearing it, and it's so beautifully done, um, there's something that that touches me and and opens me up. I want to talk from a personal um, standpoint, uh, partly about my own um, relation to devotion in uh, in practice um, because it's something I've gone back and forth with and at times has been confusing and at other times has been uh, tremendously inspirational and and want us at some point to reflect on our own relation to uh, to this topic as probably uh, most of you know, if, you, if we've known each other for a while, I, I came to practice um, through um, first being a, a, a bhakta, the bhakti path, as I've mentioned before. When I first read Be Here Now, uh, Neem Karoli Baba uh, came through those pages and touched me deeply in a way that I'd never been touched before. Um, and I still have that as a special connection. I have here the, the picture of Maharaji that I carry in my wallet. So I'm coming out of the closet with this. It's not just something in the past. But um, when he touched in me was this... Um, celebration of life, this playfulness and honoring of life, and his, uh, one of his main um, teachings 
the best form to worship God is every form really resonated with me. And, um, and so I carried around Be Here Now like a Bible for a few years until I uh, met Ram Dass in 1974 and asked him about meditation. I'd been doing some TM and other kinds of meditation, and he pointed me to, to Joseph that first summer at Naropa. And there was something about the teachings and the precision and the clarity and the just the, the directness of it, the no frills of it, investigation into the truth that touched me in another way. And it was like I came home. I came home to my practice. I came home to the Dharma. I came home to a way to get in touch with what I was so looking for. Um, and the, in those days, the, the, the Dharma, at least the way it was presented by Joseph and Jack and, and Sharon, uh, was, was very uh, stripped down as far as devotion. You know, I think they were a little bit uh, hesitant to bring all the, the, uh, the cultural, what they perhaps considered trappings or things that might bring resistance to, to Westerners um, along with the teachings. And there was something about that that also was very comforting because I had my own cultural overlay around, uh, around religion. And it wasn't without um, foundation, at least in, the, uh, in some aspect of Theravadan teachings. And this is from, uh, I'll, I'll share some from an essay by Nyanapanika Tara on devotion in Buddhism, where he says, uh, the Buddha repeatedly discouraged any excessive veneration paid to him personally. He knew that an excess of purely emotional devotion will obstruct or disturb the development of a balanced character and that it may become a serious obstacle to progress on the path to deliverance. And the Buddha himself, you perhaps uh, know the story of Vakali, this... Uh, this disciple who fell in love with the Buddha and was at his feet just staring at him and uh, worshiping him. Uh, and at some point, the Buddha kicked him out of the, the Sangha. So much uh, chagrin, so much uh, pain did Vakali have that he was about to throw himself off the cliff because his beloved had rejected him and the Buddha appeared to him through his psychic powers and, and said, don't you, one who sees the Dharma sees me. You can look at this form for a hundred years and not see the Dharma, not see the Buddha. One who sees the Dharma sees the Buddha. This is uh, Buddhism. I remember Ramdas used to call it, I don't know exactly where it came from, but there's this expression that uh, Buddha Dharma is called the path with no railings. There's not that, at least in Theravadan Buddhism, devotion to the guru or even devotion or, or worshiping the Buddha as somebody who will answer your prayers. 
very different than uh, I am the way or in other cultures where you worship a god, an external god. And it's a, it's a, it's a tricky path when you don't have railings because there's not that same, there's not the thing to lean on that you might feel comforted by. So there I was with this devotional bent and falling in love with a path with no railings. Uh, and I, uh, as I think most everybody here knows, uh, went to that scene in New York in, uh, in 1975 with Ramdas that Joseph had said, I'd, I'd started to get very dry in my apartment in New York when I left, left the summer each, uh, each summer from uh, Naropa in Colorado. And he said, you might check out Ramdas. Uh, there's this scene there, and I know you love Maharaji, and it might be a very good, good scene. And I just, I will share for my colleagues this story that was really a turning point in my putting the two together, where Ramdas said, uh, well, how do you feel about Krishna? Do you love Krishna? No, he started, how do you feel about Jesus? Do you love Jesus? And I said, well, I like Jesus. <laughs> he said, no, but, but do you love Jesus? I don't know if I love Jesus. I, I respect his teachings a lot. Because there it was, this very devotional path, and everybody doing Sri Ram, J Ram with their mala beads and stuff. And it, it, it didn't quite, I couldn't go that far. Right? And then he said, well, how do you feel about Krishna? And I said, well, do you love Krishna? I said, I like Krishna. He said, but do you love Krishna? I said, well, there's this playful, very beautiful spirit of loving life. I'm inspired by him, but I don't know if I love him the way you think, perhaps hope I would. And he said, well, what about God? Do you love God? And I said, well, you know, I was raised in the Jewish faith, and um, for me, the word God has taken on this, this being of a big guy with a beard and a book and a pen saying, you're going to have a good day and you're going to have a bad day. And, and uh, you know, it, it more put the fear of God into me than, than the love of God. And so when I hear the word God, I translate it as dharma, the, just the perfection of everything. And, and, um, and that helps me relate. And he said, well, do you love the dharma? And with that one, I said, oh, yes. Absolutely. He said, you sure? I said, absolutely. Then he said, have you ever told the Dharma you loved it? I said, no. <laughs> and he said, well, go ahead. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, just say, tell the Dharma you love it. What do you mean? Say, I love you, Dharma. <laughs> and I felt really stupid. But he said, I'll do it with you. You go ahead. And I said, okay. I love you, Dharma. And he said, I love you, Dharma. And we went back and forth. He said, keep on saying it. I love you, Dharma. I love you, Dharma. And about the fourth or fifth time, I just really felt it. I love you, Dharma. And tears started coming down my face, at which point he said, oh, there's hope for you yet. <laughs> and, 
And it was a, a very important moment in my own practice, just seeing how much I loved the Dharma, but that I hadn't really given permission for myself to say that and put it together in the context of, of Buddha Dharma. And I know everyone in this room loves the Dharma. But we don't often get in touch with that, or perhaps as often as we'd like, get in touch with that place where we have that heart connection to the love of the Dharma. And Buddhism, much to my surprise, is very devotional. Obviously, in the Tibetan tradition, there's, there's devotion, there's guru yoga, where you see the, the guru as, uh, as the Buddha. And the, the chants that are done each day, which uh, were on the, the CD that we just heard, are something that we didn't, I didn't know about for the first few years of practice, or the bowing practice, which we'll, we'll get a little taste of later on this morning. This is what Nyanapanika says. He said, it would be a mistake to conclude that the Buddha disparaged a reverential and devotional attitude of mind when it is the natural outflow of a true understanding and deep admiration of what is great and noble. It would be a grievous error to believe that the seeing of the teaching is identical with a mere intellectual appreciation of the doctrine and a purely conceptual grasp of it. Such a one-sidedly abstract approach to the very concrete message of the Buddha all too often leads to intellectual smugness. It, in its barrenness, it will certainly not be a substitute for the strong and enlivening impulse imparted by a deep-felt devotion to what is known as great, noble, and exemplary. Devotion being a facet and natural accompaniment of confidence and faith is a necessary factor in the balance of faculties required for final deliverance. The Buddha said, respect and homage to those who are worthy is a great blessing. In fact, um, uh, Tanisra, I, I, don't, I don't have the exact uh, translation. Uh, I thought the chanting sheets were in the, uh, were in the teacher room, but I'd like you just to translate the ETP so uh, namo tasa just that line and then ETP so okay um, well the namo tasa just simply is paying homage to to the Buddha what, what um, are the words the exact words? Um, namo means I pay homage I honor interestingly in Chinese they translate it as I return my life which is quite a nice take on it. Um, tasa to the Bhagavato, to the... Um, Bhagavan means like blessings, one filled with blessings. So it has this idea of one that's overflowing with blessings. Um, arahato, arahat is purified one far from greed, hatred, and delusion. Samma, sambuddhasa, samma is fully... So it's not just a moment of insight, but one that's fully matured, perfectly 
um, um, stable in their realization. So this sense of samasambuddhasa is one that completely and fully awakened, unshakably so. So um, the whole line, you just give the whole line, homage to the... the, the I pay homage to the, the blessed one, the purified one, the fully awakened one. Okay, so, so we, we contemplate the historical Buddha, but we can also contemplate that as a potentiality that we're carrying. You know, so I think that's the other side of devotion, to, mm-hmm. to recognize that we're honoring that dimension in, within our own being and mm-hmm. awakening it. So this first, the first part of the ITP, this is one of the most ancient ways of recollecting the triple jewel. And the first nine, this one of the, uh, we do anapanasati, mindfulness of breath, mindfulness practice, buddha nusati, dhamma nusati, sangha nusati. <coughs> this is consciously <coughs> reflecting on the qualities of the triple jewel. So the nine qualities of a buddha, this is a very traditional practice done in Southeast Asia, reflecting on the nine, these nine aspects of a Buddha, and it's often done with mala beads, and it's often just repeated over and over again. And as one repeats these qualities, they become more internalized. So again, itipiso bhagawa, the blessed one, one filled with blessings. Arahang, again, arahat, one who is purified from the poisons of greed, hatred, and delusion. Samma sambuddhasa, which I just spoke to, one fully awakened. Vija jarana sampanno. This is interesting in terms of vija, wisdom. Jarana has this connotation of vehicle or, or, or that which carries the wisdom of the Buddha or expression or activity, the activity of the Buddha. And the implication is that the insight and the expression of the insight are perfectly fused. There's no discrepancy between the insight and the expression. Um, so the, the Buddha is one whose wisdom and conduct are in perfect harmony. Sukato, the suffix su is good or well. Gato is that uh, you know like uh, gato is this idea of one that's calm or one that's gone or connected with tatagata. Um, has this idea of one well arrived or one well gone, <laughs> one dwelling in wellness. Uh, loka we do, the loka, lokia is the, the different worlds, one that sees the different worlds, know, knower of the worlds. The Buddha is the knower of the worlds. Anuttaro purisatam sarati Just running those two lines together, but one who perfectly trains those who wish to be trained. So it's this idea of you can only really come into the way of the, the awakening of the Buddha though if you wish to, it's not a missionary thing, but one who wishes to be trained in the way of awakening, the Buddha is the one who perfectly trains. Um, Dewa Manusanang, both devas and human beings. Buddha Bhagavati, and that's just repeating the Buddha, which is um, the, the verb Bodheti in um, Sanskrit, literally like means to open. So this Buddha is connected with this root of the, the idea of one that is open, the opening of the natural awareness. The Dhamma, the qualities of the Dhamma, Swakato, Bhagavato, Dhammo, the one, the Dhamma is Swakato, the one uh, is connected with this um, expression of speech, the, well, the Dhamma that's well expounded. 
by the Blessed One, Santitiko, is apparent here and now. The Dhamma is only here and now. Akaliko means Kali, of course, is the ruler of time. Akaliko means that uh, it's uh, timeless. The Dhamma is timeless. You won't find it in the realms of time. This is, in a way, the transcendent Dhamma. We could say the Dhamma is all things. The Dhamma is always teaching us through the world of manifestation teaching us impermanence, teaching us about its nature, but it's also the, uh, uh, the, um, the, the transcendent Dhamma. It's akaliko, it's timeless, ehi pasiko, ehi, often the Buddha would say, ehi, come. It's an invitation. The Dhamma is always inviting us, inviting investigation, opanaiko, uh, inviting us and leading us inward to the source, pachatang retita bovinyuhiti, Pachatang, uh, to be experienced, to be tasted individually by the wise. No one can do it for us. And then lastly, these qualities of patipat, these, the, the, the word to practice. This is the, the essence of being in Sangha, is those who practice. Um, the four qualities of those who practice, supatipano, uchupatipano, nyaya patipano, samichipatipano, Bhagavato Sarakasango, these are the blessed ones who supatibano practice well. This is connected with the first noble truth who open practice well with the experience of dukkha. Uju Patipano, this is Uju means direct, the middle way, the second noble truth that practice between the extremes. Nyaya Patipano Nyaya, of course connected with jnana, the knowledge. Uh, ones who practice with knowledge and insight uh, is connected with the third noble truth. And samichi patipano. Uh, samichi means accomplished. Pa- practice with accomplishment, with fruition. This is connected with uh, bringing the fourth noble truth, the path to fruition. Yaditan jatari purisa yugani atta purisa pukala. This is a very Interesting line to referring to what makes up the Sangha, the four pairs, the eight kinds of noble beings. This, uh, this refers to the four levels of insight, um, stream entra, uh, once return and non-return, ahat, and the fruition, the, those entering the path of each of those four levels and those that bring them to fruition. It's called the Arya Sangha. These are the blessed one's disciples, and such ones are Ahunayo, Pahunayo, Dakinayo, Anjali, Karaniyo, are worthy of uh, hospitality, offerings, respect. And therefore, they are Anuttarang Punya Ketang Lokasiti, which means, Lokasiti, which means. Anuttarang means that these, those that are, that are the Arya Sangha or those practicing the way of the Buddha are um, an unexcelled ketang. Punya ketang means punya, means blessing. Ketang means filled. So the unexcelled field of merit or blessing, offering into that field generates unexcelled blessings for the world. Lokasiti. Okay, so there's a... How many, comment. and you chant that how often? Well, you know, in the monastery, pr- pretty frequently. I mean, this is <laughs> this. I mean, one would do loads of chants, and this would be one of the the, the what's called the purita, the blessing chants, which would be done pretty much every day. Mm-hmm. You know, in the morning and evening, this would be chanted. 
It's very, very standard. It's, a, it's yeah. your sort of bread and, butter, bread and butter chant. Great. <laughs> so morning and evening, they're, they're chanting these qualities and, and devotion to the blessed one, exalted one, perfectly enlightened one. Yeah, we, we can get chanting, yeah. So um, you might, might say, okay, well, well what's, what's the point of this if you're maybe um, you know, not of that devotional bent? The Buddha, or there are a number of benefits that come from devotion, according to Nyanaponika. And if you've ever... How many people have read Yanaponika here? Okay. He's, he's, uh, he's not exactly what you'd call you know, a, a devotional bhakti kind of a spirit, at least in the writing. So precise, so clear, and yet as you read between the lines, he's completely devoted to the Dharma. Um, this is, uh, I'll read to you some of his quotes of the Buddha's words. <clears throat> One benefit of devotion is that it, uh, it purifies the mind. This is the Buddha from Anguttara Nikaya. When a noble disciple contemplates upon the enlightened one, at that time his mind is not enwrapped in lust, nor hatred, nor in delusion. At such a time, his mind is rightly directed. It is rid of lust, aloof from it, freed from it, etc., etc. By cultivating this contemplation, many beings become purified. And when he's, it seems like it's, it's different from what he said of not excess veneration, but as Yana Monica points out, and, uh, and Joan uh, pointed out in the, in the art the other, the other day, that you're not venerating that person, but as Yanaponika says, the Buddha is revered not as a personality of such and such a name, not as a deity, but as the embodiment of enlightenment. So you're looking at the enlightenment principle and being um, and opening your heart with great faith in that. Another benefit, besides purifying the mind, is it invigorates the mind. And the quote from Samyutta Nikaya, if in the strenuous practice, this is the, the parenthetical uh, Nyanaponika uh, putting in, if in the strenuous practice of a subject of meditation, for instance, back to the Buddha, in the contemplation of the body, Bodily agitation or mental lassitude or distraction should arise in the meditator, then one should turn one's mind to a gladdening or elevating subject. And here it's recommended recollection of the Buddha. So you ever have that feeling where you're kind of saying, oh God, what's the point? And then all of a sudden, you remember or are inspired by the Buddha, as I was in, uh, have been so often particularly my earlier years of practice, just the thought of the Buddha is like, wow. There was a point where that did not happen for a while, but I've gotten back to it. But just 
thinking of the Buddha and the possibility would gladden my heart, open my, open my heart and give me energy, invigorating the mind. And as we probably most of us know, it aids in concentration. And here again from Anguttara Nikaya, when a noble disciple contemplates upon the enlightened one, at that time the mind is not enwrapped by lust or delusion, and at that time the mind is rightly directed toward the perfect one. And with a rightly directed mind, the noble disciple gains enthusiasm for the goal, enthusiasm for the Dhamma, gains the delight derived from the Dhamma. In him, thus delighted, joy arises, to one joyfully minded body, to one joyfully minded body and mind become calm. Calmed in body and mind, one feels at ease. And if at ease, the mind finds concentration. So there's some good reasons to cultivate this. Sokni Rinpoche, who I'm sure many of you know, uh, has this beautiful line about devotion. He says he likens it to putting out a satellite dish where when your heart is open in devotion, then you can receive all the blessings of the lineage and all the blessings of the Dharma. If you're dry and just saying, yes, there's this moment and in, out, rising and falling, and it's just a very mechanical or cerebral exploration, you, you don't have your satellite dish open. That's why faith and trust and devotion are, are one of the five faculties. Mm -mm. So what are we devoted to? For, uh, for me, I've resonated greatly with uh, one of the teachings uh, on the, uh, the idipadas, the bases of success, the four idipadas, a list that perhaps you know. It's, it's one of the 37 factors of enlightenment. It's a list of lists. And the four idipadas are the sources of your energy and inspiration for practice. There is um, the, the energy, the source of enthusiasm, your natural enthusiasm. There is uh, uh, a, um, a motivation that comes, or a temperament that has the willingness to be with anything, virya idipada, that you can make heroic effort no matter what. There is also a motivation for practice when you see the urgency that we're like children in the attic with our toys as not realizing the house is on fire. And then you realize and you say, I, I want to practice here. And then one of the, the fourth, actually it's the third in that list, is called Chitta Idipada, where through your own practice, you've touched some depth, some purity. For me, the word purity does it. Some place of authenticity and truth. You've touched the Dharma or the Dharma has touched you and you fall in love with the Dharma. Not because of something that you've read in a book or heard in a, in a talk, but because you've somehow heard this call and you can't ignore it. And everything else pales in comparison. It's like a moth to a flame. 
that is, for me, and I think for most of us, a, a tremendous power in practice, source of devotion. Because this practice takes an awful lot of effort, doesn't it? You need to have something that fuels your effort to sit here and stay with all the, the kalesas and all the dukkha that you see in the mind. Why else would you be able to stay there unless you have a very heartfelt connection? Um, it makes it sure makes it a lot easier. For me, when I, I went through a period where I, I, as I said yesterday in, in the, the group that I was with, the, the, uh, the, the, the half of the group, um, when we were talking about, you know, came up in conversation, for a while I felt disconnected from that passion for the Dharma uh, because somehow the Buddha had taken on this image of a just a stern taskmaster that uh, that I misunderstood teachings and practices and and really dried up for a while and it wasn't until actually that I um, that I visited Punjaji in India that I re reconnected with my love of the Buddha it's kind of interesting I needed to go to somebody who wasn't a Buddhist to reconnect with, with my love of the Buddha. And Punjaji was on fire in his own practice. He was a Krishna Bhakta. He was so completely into devotion that he would dress up as a gopi in his younger days. This is before he had his awakening. He dressed up as a Krishna gopi, as a, a like a, a, a cowherd that Krishna would... Uh, I would um, would dance with to attract Krishna, and he uh, this is he wasn't the only one that did this. It sounds a little <laughs> bit extreme, but he was just inviting Krishna because he was so in love with Krishna. And then he met Ramana Maharshi, who woke him up and said, "Wouldn't it be better to be Krishna instead of wanting to invite Krishna?" Um, but Punjaji talks about. The, the cry of freedom and the devotion that comes with that. He says, the desire for freedom is the most intense desire. All other desires are on the surface. They rise and fall, you see. The desire for freedom is intense and you must respond to it. When you respond, this desire will bring you home. It will continue to trouble you if it is not fulfilled. This de desire must be filled whether you like it or not. <clears throat> Ramana Maharshi says, devotion is nothing more than knowing oneself. And this Argadot, just a couple of other inspirational quotes things that have inspired me. Your sincerity will guide you. Devotion to the goal of freedom and perfection will make you abandon all theories and systems and live by wisdom, intelligence, and love, and active love. 
Whatever you name you, you give it, will or steady purpose or one-pointedness of mind, you come back to earnestness, sincerity, honesty. When you are in dead earnest like this, you bend every incident, every second of your life to your purpose. Uh, Ramana Maharshi, devotion is nothing more than knowing oneself. And from Ramakrishna, who is the ultimate. <laughs> Check this out. Hmm. Whether you follow the ideal of a personal God or the impersonal truth, you will certainly realize the one reality, provided that you experience profound longing. The same cake tastes sweet from every direction. Place your devotion wholeheartedly at the service of the ideal most natural to your being, but know with unwavering certainty that all spiritual ideals are expressions of the same supreme presence. Do not allow the slightest trace of malice to enter your mind toward any manifestation of God or any practitioner who attempts to live in harmony with the divine manifestation. Krishna, Kali, Buddha, Christ, Allah, these are all full expressions of the same indivisible consciousness and bliss. These are revelatory initiatives of divine reality, not man-made notions. The ecstatic lover has burning faith in every divine manifestation as formless radiance, as various forms or attributes, as divine incarnations like Rama and Krishna, as the goddess of wisdom who is beyond form and formlessness, containing both in her mystic womb. So once we hear the, the call, we can't ignore it. Something is calling us. Do you remember when you first heard that and you couldn't ignore it? When I was with Punjaji, he once asked me as I went inside the next day, he said, something happened to you yesterday. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, well, you got, into, you got in touch with, with the truth. And I said, what do you mean? He said, well, when you closed your eyes and you were meditating, and I didn't know what he was talking about. He said, what, what happened there? And I said, well, I don't know, just something called me to just go inside and be quiet. And then he said, what is this something? And when I reflected on that, it wasn't even a reflection. When I just, it was like I just was pulled into another dimension. What is it that calls us? It turned me inside out. What is that something that's calling us? Whether you call it the Dharma or God or whatever, something mysteriously calls us that touches us that we can't ignore. <clears throat> so Gil Rinpoche says devotion is unbroken receptivity to the truth. So I'll just um, close 
for now uh, by by saying, well, I'll just share one last story. Uh, a couple of years ago, I, I sat a retreat here. After I taught the February retreat, I sat for the month of March. And it was a very uh, powerful retreat. It was both a, it turned into a concentration retreat and also a very devotional retreat. And I think they, they had their, uh, one affected the other. And I had a puja, and there was a picture of Maharaji, and there was Punjaji, and there was the Buddha, and I reconnected with them all in a way that I hadn't in quite a while. And when I, and I would often sit in front of Maharaji, as I still do look at my picture of Maharaji, and I would, I would pray to Maharaji but what I, when I pray, it wouldn't be like there's some being necessarily, I don't know, some being who's answering my prayers. My prayer would be, or my, what would come out of me was Maharaji, or that divine energy that I call Maharaji. And then I'd say whatever I'd say. And there was something, there is something about it that it takes, it takes me outside of myself to a place of surrender and aligns the heart with a certain ray of truth that resonates for me in the form of that being. And I think for all of us, we can explore what it is, what ray that is in us that, that touches us deeply. So now to close, I have one more piece and then I'll invite some words from other friends. Is I'd like to play one more cut uh, from the other CD. And while while I'm uh, while they're gearing it up <coughs> it's that one, yeah. Uh, to, I'll wait till uh, this, is, this was my connection to devotion before I ever heard of spirituality or Buddhism or Hinduism or whatever. Uh, and it is um, blind Reverend Gary Davis, who for a year was the, he and one other thing was, was about the only thing that I put on my record player. It was the days of vinyl. And he was a Harlem street singer who has discovered this amazing, brilliant musician who, um, when I heard him, besides the amazing musicianship, there was something in his voice that I longed for, the devotion that he had. And so when, I, I just want to share it with you, when you hear it and he's talking about having a little bit more faith in Jesus, you can just translate it to the Dharma. But more than the words, connect with that place in you that so loves the mystery or the Dharma. And I would just ask you to reflect, and we'll be doing this later on together, what the word devotion means for you and the, the place that it has in your 
in your practice. So um, it's number nine. Listen to the energy underneath the words.
feel the spirit? We could use that a little bit more in uh, in that spirit rock and in the in the in our dharma. So, so uh, just invite each of you to say some words, and then we can do some uh, some practices. Yeah, a little break. Okay, a little break, and then we'll come back. I. What it did was it shook away all the cobwebs and ideas I had about what Buddha Dharma was that I'd been carrying around for a while and had filtered through a very narrow lens. And I then went back and reconnected with the amazing being that he was and the teachings that have inspired me so. And um, that brought me back to falling in love again with, with Buddha Dharma. And so um, I take my inspiration from wherever I can find it, but um, devotion to the truth is the thing that inspires me most. <clears throat> so uh, I don't know if we want to go down the line or how we want to do it or uh, and and given we're going to do a few exercises so you know I it wouldn't be possible for everybody to to, to for talk for as long as I did but uh, just say what actually uh, what I'm also really interested in is the place in devotion in your own practice as much as anything. Yeah. So, do you have a, you have a mic? Mm-hmm. You want to start? I don't know. <laughs> who, who would like, we can do it popcorn style. Who feels like, uh, like saying something? Okay. I go. <laughs> no problem. <laughs> I think devotion plays a very important role in the path of uh, Buddha Shakyamuni, as well as also individuals' quest of a great awakening. And if there is a shortcut to the enlightenment, the path of devotion must be one of them, because it has nothing to do with the conceptual analysis, speculations, or processes, or 12 steps programs, or 108 (laughs) steps programs. (laughs) So it's immediate, it's surprising, it's an unprepared invitation into the realm of the truth. Because uh, uh, to me, Devotion means uh, immediate dissolution of self, uh, where you just let self dissolve. This notion of a limited self dissolves without so much relying on all this uh, 
complex theories, but uh, something to power of uh, surrendering. But now the question begins, what means uh, surrender? And that is the place where we are working on the razor stages. There are lots of uh, uh, pitfalls that we must be aware and conscious of it. A spiritual path is uh, filled with uh, pitfalls, believe or not, and we have to be very cautious with alertness and intelligence. So, Nanganjana, which is perhaps considered the second Buddha, is responsible of a, a brand tradition of Mahayana Buddhism to the world, as well as also he is a prolific writer. So his writings can be synthesized into two categories, we call in Tibetan, the Bandita style and the Kusali style. The Bandita style is rather very scholarly, such as his writings on the Majjhimaka, uh, in which he illuminated the brilliant reasonings, uh, validating the notion of emptiness, anatman, etc. And his uh, other writings, which belongs to the category of uh, the Kusali style, which is more like devotional, it's a cycle of hymns, hymns to the, for example, in Tibetan, we say hymns to the Dharma, the Chuyana Thopa. It's a devotional hymn, and that the practitioners can recite. But mainly, his hymns is very much uh, praise uh, to the truth itself, most of the time, praise to the emptiness. And not so much really there is a mental images such as a, a deities, but it's more hymns to the truth, hymns to the emptiness. So I have been reciting some of those hymns in my own dharma practice and try to how fit that with the, my devotional practice. So there's a transformation is happening in my relationship to that practice because in the old days, it is impossible for my mind to experience any form of devotion unless there is mental image. Either Tara or Avalokiteshvara, somebody has to be there in my consciousness. The more heads, the better it is. The more hands, the better it is. <laughs> but going to emptiness was impossible. <laughs> I even didn't know that you can experience ecstasy by simply surrendering to emptiness because my ego is always looking for something to hold on to, to surrender. I need the storylines in my consciousness. <laughs> But then the question is, is every devotion is totally the right path or not? We have to question about that. Well, there was an enlightened person, a Tibetan man named Genin Shimbil. He said, I don't know what the trust is all about. People always go around talking about trust. They're simply talking about attachment and personal favoritism. <laughs> That's what he said. So therefore, we have to be a little bit cautious in the realm of a devotion. Yes, devotion is a very beautiful experience, absolutely. But we have to really know what, what is motivating, what is propelling our mind to experience that. Because when we say devotion, we look into our mind, what is the feeling? Sometimes you're just feeling being blessed out, having spiritual high, lots of fireworks happen in our consciousness. Or sometimes we are feeling very much romantic, uh, poignant, 
I think perhaps the a similar experience when we fall in love with uh, somebody, mm-hmm. or when we hear some wonderful piece of music, or when we walk into a beautiful garden, or when we watch a sunset, we feel quite blessed out. And especially if we associate with that religious entities, then we think, oh, I'm getting somewhere now. <laughs> you see, because it's an association with the religious element. And also, uh, devotion is a path that is truly imagined, but also a path that has many traps, like some of the religious fanatism. And the fundamentalism come from very much the path of uh, devotion because people are holding on to the pseudo-devotion, you see. And like many of the, even today's like uh, religious fundamentalists, uh, are they devotional? They are very devotional. Absolutely. <laughs> so there's no question about that. So when we say devotion, I think we have to redefine what really devotion means. To me, the devotion means uh, surrendering the ego, surrendering all our concepts, surrendering all our habits, all our mind is uh, uh, And whatever method is required, I think, uh, yes, it is true that there is a tremendous uh, blessings, power in uh, reciting hymns and also, for example, uh, practice in sadhana. It's very powerful. It is true because, uh, uh, for example, uh, I sometimes uh, pray to the Tara and Avalokiteshvara. It's very powerful. There's no question about it. But to me, Tara or Avalokiteshvara are not gods. They are not even deities. They are expression of the emptiness. They are expression of the bodhicitta and the boundless love. But they are not really supernatural entities. Mm-hmm. So to me, this is uh, uh, the path of devotion, and it's a very uh, powerful path. But also, last night I was uh, overhearing a conversation. Or one of you said that uh, perhaps uh, there is this uh, issue that whether there's a enough devotion juice in this song or not. <laughs> so I think you should not worry about it. I think you have everything what you need. Uh, because remember, your path is coming from mainly the lineage of our Theravadan Buddhism. And you know that there are many people who are enlightened from practicing Theravadan Buddhism, they didn't go around. We said, well, we need a little more devotions. <laughs> Those forest monks didn't go around, <laughs> try to hire some Hare Krishna person <laughs> to teach them how to ring the bell or roll an eyeballs, <laughs> speaking through tongue, totally blissed out. They become arhat. Arhat means enlightened ones, conquer ones. Because devotion means surrender, that's all. It doesn't have to be some kind of very powerful emotional, you know, drama, being blessed out, rolling your eyeballs. I don't think so. (laughs) To me, it's surrender to the truth is devotion. You surrender to the truth already, otherwise you would not be on this path for years, years with unflinching um, trust in the Holy Dharma. I think you have already enough devotion, so... So my little suggestion is that you might like to uh, define what devotion is all about and realizing that uh, 
the element of devotion is uh, very much complete in the uh, teachings uh, of the masters from your lineage. And that's all I want to say. Thank you, everybody. <laughs> this is my concept, anyway. Please disregard. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yes. <coughs> well, in the Zen tradition, there is a saying that some of you, most of you might have already heard. Uh, it says, if you meet the Buddha on the road, kill him. You must kill him. Uh, and that perhaps is an interesting place to look at the whole issue of devotion. Normally, when we look at devotion, we are always setting up a certain kind of dichotomy that there is a certain kind of relationship between two things. Usually, a self who is in some kind of relationship with what you might call the other. There's something I've been talking to different groups uh, yesterday. And it seems to me that in our practice, it's a fundamental problem. What the Zen tradition is saying, that if there is something external which is presenting itself to us as a Buddha, you cannot trust it. The Buddha is already inside you. If there is something outside presenting itself as the truth, you cannot trust it because the truth is already inside. If, somebody, if something outside is presenting itself as the dharma, you cannot trust it. It is already inside you. So when we use language, and when we use language in this kind of dualistic way, I think there is a fundamental um, miscognition that we set up for ourselves. If we are careful, I think it can be done, what Rinpoche just said, that when he visualizes Tara Ravalokiteshwara, he is aware that this is all expression of emptiness. Yes, so that's a very wise way of doing your thing. Um, my own experience in my practice has been that there have been moments when there is this tremendous upwelling of gratitude. I mean, just enormous gratitude that had come up. And, you know, tears have come to my eyes kind of thing. And those have also been very interesting moments for me. It was very clear to me in those moments that I could make a story about it that I could be grateful to X, Y, or Z. Or I could be just grateful to life itself. And that was a choice for me, to be gratitude to life itself. And if we want to call it devotion, I don't have a problem with that. But I would say that as soon as we use the word devotion, we are using a very tricky linguistic concept. Okay? There are 
genuine human emotions that come up, like gratitude, this feeling of gratitude. It's a felt experience. It's, it's life itself. That's something that we can trust with that. And when it comes up, there is no name that we can give to that. And in that appreciation of that particular moment, there is not a dualistic relationship with anything else. So whenever we talk about devotion, I would just urge you to a little bit careful about the language that we are talking uh, or using to talk about. As soon as we say devoted to or devotion of, there is this kind of dichotomous dualistic relationship. And what the teachings are telling us that all things are empty. The self is empty and whatever we are devoting itself to is also empty. So it is emptiness having a relationship with the other emptiness. And if we have that kind of understanding, then perhaps it's possible to have some kind of wise and healthy paradigm that we can create for ourselves. But so long as there is idea that I am devoted to this, it's a tricky, it's a tricky business. Okay. And my, my experience uh, of practicing in Korea is that at the folk level, uh, the worshiping of the Buddhas, and I'm sure it's the same thing in Tibet and it's the same thing in Japan, that it has become a very theistic uh, notion. People are surrendering to this deity or that deity and imagining some external reality that has the power to intervene in their lives. That's why the Zen people said, well, if you meet the Buddha, you must kill him because the Buddha, supposedly the external reality, has some power to influence your life. The only thing that has the power to influence your own life is your own commitment to investigating the truth. So eventually I would say it comes down to a question of trust. What can we trust? Can we trust our own capacity for investigation? Or are we trusting in something external to which we are devoted to? And these are not insignificant issues because they set up some basic intentions that shape our practice. If we are always looking for, even if we are looking for dharma as some kind of savior, we are creating that dichotomous relationship. And the dharma itself is the truth which is present in our mind-body system at any given time. So it's just a different way of looking at devotion. And um, as I said earlier, I do not rule out uh, our deep, deep appreciation of the human qualities that emerge in our practice, like uh, sadness emerges and gratitude emerges and the feeling of empathy that emerges and loving kindness that emerges. All those things are you know, very, that's our birthright. These are the qualities that emerge in practice. But we don't need to make any story around that. We don't need 
to necessarily say I should be having some kind of relationship to this particular experience to which I can be devoted to. Okay. I'm sure there is a lot more to be said, but uh, I'll give it to other people here. Um, these are three men here have spoken eloquently and uh, I think you know it's a subject where all of our personal experience is unique and there's room for all of it um, myself from I was telling James from my first memory about three years old of devotion so for me it's really been there all my life as a very natural arising um, and I think in Tantra, in Buddhist Tantra, this duality that Musang was talking about of, of devoted to something outside of the self is used as a reflection, as a method for actually discovering the Buddha nature, our true being within, and the, what James brought up about the idea of um, primordial purity, the essential purity of who we really are. So that opening um, to, for example, sometimes when I'm speaking about this with students, I say, you know, it's, it's easier for us to imagine the Dalai Lama's awakened than we are. It's maybe easier to imagine the Buddha was awakened than ourselves as awakened beings. It may be easier for us to experience in, you know, thinking about the Buddha or thinking about Jesus or thinking about the Dalai Lama or somebody like that that they are a pure being or awakened being than we feel about ourselves. So I found that this receptivity idea that James brought up from Sogyal Rinpoche, as a child in opening to uh, going to church, I was raised an Anglican Episcopalian, and luckily they didn't sort of screw it up, so they just sort of left it there and we were free to do our own thing. So in opening in my own just natural devotional way in that space to sacred energy, sacred space, you know, Jesus, Mary, it wasn't so necessarily particular to something. It was an opening. And through that opening to something that I experienced as much more real than what I generally experienced in our daily life, you know, it felt, I think that's why I gravitated towards spirituality even from that age was that it felt like there was something more real there, more true. And I also gravitated towards cemeteries and funerals from, you know, two, three years old. But it was that gravitation towards something true, something more real. And so in that, in opening myself to that, um, in that receptivity, there were a lot of experiences of feeling a blessing of some sort of union in which myself and in, as a child, the transmission of Jesus was not separate of the Christ or in taking Holy Communion. There was that mingling of experience with um, something beyond myself. And I had 
tremendous longing, especially in my late teens and early 20s and uh, for, I don't know, you know, what I maybe would have expressed as divine union. And I've always been very, very open. I was telling James, I'm sort of non-discriminated. I have devotion toward all religions. And my own teacher, Kala Rinpoche, used to say that all religions and all true spiritual beings are reflections of awakened mind, like Rinpoche was saying. Really empty, but reflections of awakened mind that through, like Rinpoche was saying, their love and compassion manifest in, in different ways and the variety of ways. So I've had all this devotion to whatever different forms truth takes. And yet it was my deep longing that I feel really opened me to my own Buddha nature, to, you know, through the reflective experience of my teachers reflecting that back to me. So in my late teens and 20s, I had a very strong experience of my own shadow, continually kind of my own clashes and whatnot and all that material. And yet there was this opening and reaching out for that which was beyond that. That was, you know, and in that, I remember one experience um, when I was about 21 or so, I went to a therapist and, you know, we were just sort of going along doing therapy. And then, you know, I went five or six times. And then one day she said, well, what about self-love? And I was like, what? What is that? You know, so I went home and I began contemplating that. And for a few years, it was like a koan. And I just kind of worked away on it. And I saw how my mind was critical, self-critical, particularly and other things. And I kind of worked on softening and kind of trying to open into that. And then, then one day I was in Darjeeling in India at the monastery of my teacher Kala Rinpoche and staying with Boka Rinpoche, who became his successor. And there was a moment that, similar to what um, Tanisara experienced, where Bokar Rinpoche looked at me. We were coming out of a teaching, just standing there in a very informal moment, and just looked at me. And in that moment, the, ref- the transmission of awakened mind, of recognizing my Buddha nature, my own pure being, connected with what I had been trying to come to in myself, a feeling of self-love appreciation. And the whole thing just sort of clicked into place. And it was actually a very powerful experience where a lot of stuff just dropped away and I was able to feel, not a self-love in a, you know, a egocentric way, but just opening, dropping into an experience of my own being as primordial purity, the Buddha nature. And I found this through my path happening quite a few times where the devotion, you know, and I very much agree with what Rinpoche was saying, but at the same time I had a very devotional character. The devotion that's realized is what one is devoted to is not separate from one's own true nature, that the true nature that's inherent in all of us, there is no separation anywhere. And yet the opening, the devotion to that allows the experience, almost like a channel, like I didn't experience. The more I opened up devotionally to, and in the surrender, like Rinpoche was saying, just complete surrender, but to authentic reality, authentic presence, truth, whatever form it was taking, and the love of that, 
that deep longing opened up a channel where I could actually experience it. So my experience was like, it's like carving out, you know, like when you're in San Quentin and then you have to escape. So you carve out this tunnel, you know, and, and through that tunnel, you know, you get to freedom. So that's how I've experienced devotion. And, um, you know, for me, it's just a sense of deep love for the expressions of, of, of love and, and truth and beauty and compassion and wisdom and, you know, wherever that appears. And I do think, you know, what Rinpoche also said that is important is about this discernment in what we're being devoted to. And really, you know, it's not about a personality. Even in Guru Yoga and Tantra and Dzogchen and Mahamudra where devotion is extremely emphasized, it's nothing to do with the personality of a particular teacher. Of course, we love our own teachers. That's natural, you know, to love somebody who's given us the Dharma and, and who un, has unstinting generosity and compassion and love to just teach us and be with us and guide us on the path. But it's not about a personality, you know, whether it's ourselves or something else. It's, it's really about the totality of, of dharmata, or, you know, suchness as it is, that is the empty, radiant, luminous, you know, the union of love and compassion that is our essential nature. So, and then, you know, there's a period where a lot of that dropped away for me as I was really entering into a much more full experience of emptiness and the integration of that and Dzogchen and Mahamudra in our tradition. And, 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 uh, and then again, you know, it's just, I think, just bubbles back up. And we've been singing a lot of songs of realization in my Sangha and from many Tibetan masters. And in those songs, there's really the pointing out instructions about the realization of the nature of mind and reality and, and emptiness and luminosity, clarity, the union of that. And also, you know, sometimes, um, like they usually start all the songs of realization with a namo to an homage um, in Sanskrit to their teacher, the Buddha or the other teachers. So there's kind of always that, thank you for being the vessel that brought truth to me. And yet then into the devotion, you know, for true nature, which is beyond all that, which is this emptiness, clarity, the emptiness, awareness. So, so for me, it's, um, it's a real joy to open my heart in devotion and, and sing and just pray and feel the inseparability of it all. So it's, it's, it's been very valuable and helpful. And I continue to have deep devotion also, Jesus and Mary, St. Catherine, as well as Tara and Avalokiteshvara, other, you know, my own teachers and Ramakrishna and, you know, many, many different, different beings. So that's, that's my thing. <laughs> <laughs> Thank <laughs> you.
So, James, I just want to check in with your time. Yeah. Is it, do you want to still do this Baron thing, or what day? It's 10 past 11. I will say a few words. Yeah, perfect. Oh, I still hear that. So <laughs> turned it on. <laughs> so, um, yeah. Wow. What a big subject. God. I'm, my. I'm just having so many things far off as I'm hearing the different pieces and resonating and um, I, I, I think ultimately it is very personal and I'm kind of on the ray a little bit more of uh, what Lama La was saying just now in terms of you know the multifaceted and the emptiness and the dualism back into emptiness and but I'm, I actually want to I actually want to in particular sorry this sort of fell down oh that's it I actually want to, in particular, because I'm aware of the context I'm speaking in with the... With the um, actually, before I even contact, go into that, um, one of the things that I, I wanted to, to say, what I thought came out of... Um, um, our sharing yesterday with something I think I might have heard Musang say, which I just want to speak to where you... You might have said um, that um, you still can't hear. Shall I just come and use James's one? Like, is there something? Um, yes, this might be better. Is this better? Yeah. Okay. Good. No. And the other, and these other things need to be pressed off. Mm. Okay, so something about this that, as what I might have heard, that as lay people we can't be part of Theravada. It's more as with Vipassana tradition. Did I hear your? Yes, I I beg to differ, but just to, because I want to context that. Actually, I, I would say that, um, that I under, my understanding of lineage is that uh, Theravada is in, includes the fourfold Sangha, Bhikshu, Bhikshuni, Upasika, and Upasika. And that, um, the, in a way, the Vipassana isn't so much a tradition. It's something that's a method <laughs> that has been somehow become this sense of some tradition, which is a very recent thing. And I think in that process, I agree with... Um, um, Rinpoche, that there is within the tradition the, ca- the transmission of that which carries the tradition, which I feel underneath is a very profound stream of devotion, which in to do with the particularity of our wounding as Westerners that many of us have carried to our devotional nature in response to the very unskillful way religious uh, teachings were transmitted, that there was this correction that happened of stripping away of a part of the, the of the fullness of the parts of the fullness of the Theravada transmission for the sake of this honing in on one very strong focus which we were all interested in which was meditation vipassana inquiry 
And I think there has been in that, although it's there, I think there has been some loss and, and a, drying, a dryness of approach, which at a certain point after 10 or 20 years into Vipassana, people were bailing out to go to gurus and non-dual teachers and Dzogchen and, you know, this, there was a sense of we need the juice. <laughs> you know, we can't, you know, and, and can we reclaim devotion? Can we actually, I think this is a very important inquiry, can we reclaim it and really uh, bring it back, the heart in its fullness and uh, it back in to illuminate our wisdom practice, our, our stripping away practice, our deconstructionist practices of the self. And I love the way Ananda Mayamar says this whole world is of yourself, but you don't realize it. And so therefore, either either melt the separative consciousness through devotion or burn it away through wisdom. So I'm kind of, I am very much have been interested in the melting part, having, you know, well, the balance of both. Um, informed, as, as has been mentioned, from a def, depth understanding of it all emerges from emptiness. So we're actually ultimately talking about a non-dual situation. And for me, the, the, you know, as we deep, more deeply strip away the self, what we're actually stripping away into is a fullness of the, of the understanding that, that we're entering into uh, the communion at a very deep level with all of life. <laughs> and for me, that is when, that, when there's that tasting of that and that entry of that, the, expre- the, the expression, everything is expression, expressing devotion because it's either expressing from that place its lostness and desire to come back into the oneness or expressing the joy and the beauty from that oneness. So, so I'm, I'm with that, but just more personally, I, I mean, one of the things that, that, that Einstein said was, was there's two ways to look at this world. Either everything is a miracle or nothing is. So I'm more with that everything is. <laughs> And so what I wanted to talk to, um, and I have to be very brief because you've been so kind with your patient listening and there's a lot of input and we want you to discuss it, but I want to talk about, just to mention the territory, maybe we don't have time to go into it, but to, to, to um, miraculous response. There's a line from a Chinese um, uh, contemplation that emerges within the Lotus Sutra which, which says the response of the, and the way are intertwined inconceivably, which is similar in the in the part in the Pali of you know practice the Dhamma and the Dharma will look after you. But there's something in that there's a mysteriousness in that relationship of the response and the way are intertwined inconceivably. As you devote oneself more deeply into the practice, there are these responses that happen. And as I mentioned in our little group in um, yesterday, working in KwaZulu Natal in South Africa, both as teaching Dharma and, and involved in the um, post um, transition from apartheid colonialism, in the middle of a community that's inflicted by a very high percentage of HIV and all the problems that uh, discrepancies, racism, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. One of the very profound um, um, practices that have helped to carry our work there has been a very, very um, consistent um, devotional practices, and which which is a lot of recitation, ceremony, devotion, 
And I've actually felt that it has actually been a character, because we haven't had a big sangha, we haven't had a peer group, we've had to bring up from ourselves, my partner and I primarily, um, our own practice, and we haven't been able to do it on our own. But we haven't had a, a maturity of holding to help us hold the work there. So what we've called on is our, through our devotional practice, the satellite thing of Zogni Rinpoche, of just opening to the universe, and particularly you know, using the, the invocation of Guan Yin, Avalokiteshvara, um, although, you know, anyone will do. Call <laughs> on Hanuman, and <laughs> you know, she, whoever wants to come by and pitch in, that's great, you know. <laughs> and there's, there have been miraculous responses. There really have. In, in times when we were, you know, one, one time when we were completely burnt out and had to run from the hermitage, we had a few minutes to escape from a, you know, the, the, the elements there are very wild. It's a very Kali-like land. And we were doing a three-month retreat and a fire came through. We were doing a lot of Kuan Yin practices. And my partner's meditation hut, which weighs a ton, was picked up by wind and just smashed like a matchbox. And he had in that a little delicate Kuan Yin made of ivory that was given to him by um, a, a, a very elder woman from the Sangha in the UK who had been in China in the ending of the Raj era, colonial era, and been given this little Kuan Yin, and she gave it on to Kirisara when he was a monk. So he had this very delicate Kuan Yin, and everything got smashed except this Kuan Yin. And then after that, um, I picked up, he had a, a picture of, of, of Kuan Yin, which I knew he was very attached to. He doesn't have many attachments, but that was one of them. And I put it in his drawer. You know, while we were evacuating, I said, I thought, I know, I know he wants this picture. So it was one of the things I did very mindfully, a little plastic picture. And meanwhile, we had to run from the fire. The fire swept through. And I thought, well, that's it. That's the end of our whole story in South Africa. You know, the hermitage is burnt to the ground. And when we came back, it wasn't. It was, it, it was miraculous because the level of heat was just spontaneously igniting logs and grass. And our, our main shrine room, which has a, a very large Avalokiteshvara, was made of um, thatch. And we had things burning just a few feet away from the thatch. And, you know, uh, then we went into a freeze, and then Kitty Sara said, where's that picture of Kuan Yin? I said, no, it's in your drawer. And he opened the drawer, and it wasn't there. And then eventually, after a day of clearing up, and everything was black, and everything had gone into a freeze, we found this little picture of Kuan Yin on the ground at a place that we'd been walking up and down hundreds of times, running around, putting the fire out. And I just thought, you know, and then the fire officer came, and he said, I can't believe it, you've had a miracle here, you know. So anyway, that's one of many, many stories, but I just wanted to, the response and the way are intertwined inconceivably. So um, I'd like to, um, to have you now explore. Uh, <clears throat> first, and we'd like to do two exercises, and, um, and then... Uh, Tanisara is going to share with us a bowing uh, meditation for the last 15 minutes. Ten minutes. Ten minutes. Okay, yeah. Okay, good. So um, we'll see how much time there is. So the first is um, to do a dyad with somebody. And uh, 
and then we'll do a small group of four. So the first is um, two repeating questions. You might write them down. The first one is, tell me what gets in the way of your devotion. And each will take oh, four minutes or so, four or five minutes, we'll see. Uh, I'll ring a bell. And then the second question, tell me what evokes devotion for you. And uh, again, back and forth. And then we're going to, um, uh, then after that, get into, well, I'll just leave you at that one until the next time. All right, so find a, a person to do it with. Raise your hand. If you need a partner, look for somebody else with a raised hand. Look around. You've got to look around and see who else has a raised hand. Um, behind you? Okay, there's Terry and... Okay. Who else? Anybody else who needs a a partner? Marlene. Okay. 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 I'll time you. Okay. So, everybody who has somebody, anybody who doesn't. Okay. Yes. Yeah. We'll uh, like five after twelve or so. Yeah. Okay. 12 or 12, yeah, 12, 5 after 12, yeah. Okay, yeah, good. Okay, so um, you can uh, begin, right, now. Or the you know t- returning back into the uh, the um, the emptiness, it's always balanced with uh, pure land or the bhakti, the devotional. So one traditionally does a week of of uh, ceremony of holding the, the name of one of the bodhisattvas, and then follows on into the second week of dropping all form and ceremony, and it's just the the inquiry: who's doing this? Who's who's holding the name? So today we just got a few minutes and I'd like to introduce you to this particular um, bowing practice while holding the name of Kuan Yin. Uh, Kuan Yin, of course, is the um, Chinese uh, translation of Avalokiteshvara. Um, One translation of Avalokite, to regard or to listen, Shvara, the sound. Um, Kuan means to listen or regard. Xu means the world, and yin means sound. Pusa is the Chinese for bodhisattva. 
So it's so Namo Kwan Shu Yin Pusa, which you have on the chanting sheets, one of the mantras on the first page. Um, I'm not sure which number it is, but it's um, number two, Namo Kwan Shu Yin Pusa. That's the mantra. So um, in doing this, um, as, as Master Wa said, who taught these practices, he said, well, if you don't know Kwan Yin is, who Kwan Yin is, and if you don't want to be dualistic about it and say, you know, Namo Kwan Shu Yin, uh, you don't like that idea, then he would just say, well, just say your own name, and, and when you figure out who you are, you'll know who Kwan Yin is. <laughs> <laughs> So um, what, what I'd like to also say, this is completely, of course, an invitation to, to join in this practice. If you, don't, if you just like to listen to it as we play the sound, if you don't feel comfortable bowing or you, or you just want to bow you know, according to however much your body allows, the full prostration or just, um, you know, just nodding your head a little bit, but uh, just to the extent that you feel comfortable or not, you can just listen to it and connect with the the inner meaning of of returning to that which is listening to the to the to the heart of awareness that which is just present that's what the the whole practice is bringing us back into that suchness of the of the moment so as we do it's a communal practice so we do one round of the mantra standing together the second round of the mantra this half of the room will bow i was actually wondering if quilly if you could because you did it with us on the, if you could hold this side for me. So when Quilly bows, then you bow with Quilly. And then at the end of that round, this this side comes up, and my side will go into the bow. And we just alternate a few times. We haven't got a lot of time to do it. You know, usually one does this practice for as long as you can, really. I mean, usually we did it for an hour, but we do it for a few minutes. And then I'll ring the bell, and then the side that's bowing comes up into the standing, and then we finish with one complete round. So it's just to give you a flavor of a devotional practice that's quite beautiful, actually. Okay, so, so, you, so you need to just stand. And the, the, let me just show you the full-length prostration. Ah, 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 ah,
Ah, <laughs> ah,
So it's time for lunch, and uh, this afternoon we're going to come back first as a as the full group and um, explore lineage and authority. Um, and we're going to hear from all the all the people before we break up into two separate groups. Hear from uh, various teachers' voices. So. Um, and then we'll break up into the groups. And I, whatever touched you from this morning or didn't touch you, just notice what your ever reactions you have and take it as practice. And uh, just uh, the way I see it, devotional practices are just skillful means to get in touch with that place that awareness is just loving itself through us. So um, whatever is beneficial, wonderful, what's not, you can leave the rest and Stay with whatever your practice is that opens your heart. Thank you. James, can I speak a little bit about prostration? Uh, 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 let me give you some uh, personal fascinating insight about prostration practice. In the Korean tradition, uh, prostration is very big. Uh, the person who was the spiritual head of Korean Buddhism this is 1970s, 80s. He used to live in a hermitage up on a hill. 
And he set up this rule that any person who wanted to come and have any kind of dharma inquiry with him will have to do 3,000 prostrations before they could even talk to him. And there were two monks, you know, who made sure that uh, you did 3,000 prostrations. And once you did 3,000 prostrations, all your questions disappeared. Um, and my own teacher was very big on prostrations. So normally he would do a 1,000 prostrations a day. And, and I have done ret- uh, retreats, uh, you know, 3,000 prostrations a day, uh, which is quite a fascinating experience. And what I found in there was some interesting parallels. Uh, before I ever came to Zen practice, I used to do marathon running. And in marathon running, some of you who have done that find that there is a production of endorphins in the brain, and especially serotonin. And what I found in my own prostration practice was exactly the same phenomena happening. Uh, endorphins and serotonin being produced in the brain as a result of prostration practice. So it, it's a slightly different perspective on prostration, you know, um, but, but, but it's, a fascinating, it's a fascinating thing to do. You know, your body and mind gets engaged in ways like never ever before. And, um, okay. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> Jack used to say after a while in, in uh, Ajahn Chah's monastery, he, at first he had a, a, aversion to, to bowing, and then uh, after a while it was a, if it moves, he bowed, <laughs> and he really got into it. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.